Good morning, everybody. It is good to see you guys. We are in our love playlist. And on my love playlist, that song is really high up. There's a great song. And it's perfect for this season, uh, simply because it, it's often misunderstood that what he's saying is, is I want to love somebody the way that you love somebody. And so in, in the terms of where we've been with this Corinthian love passage, and it's, it's a great way for us to, to kick off our worship time. So wherever you are, wherever you're joining us, thank you for being here. As we begin today, I want us to start in a similar fashion than how we did last Sunday. Rick had led us through a time of, of uh, silent prayer. And I want to do that today. And I want to give you something to think about while you're doing that. This is something that I do in my mornings. Whenever my alarm goes off, I'll hit, the, I'll hit the snooze button, and then I'll sit up in my bed just a little bit, and I'll stay there for the next nine minutes until the alarm goes off again, and I'll have this nine-minute silent prayer where I, just, I become aware of my breath. And as I breathe in, I just imagine myself taking in as much of the love of God as I can. Let my entire body is just filling up with the goodness of God. And then as I exhale, I imagine all of that goodness that I had taken in, I imagine it flowing through me out into the world. And so before my feet ever hit the floor in the morning, I've taken time to practice gratitude. So I want us to do that right now. I invite you just to, just to be still and close your eyes and just become aware of your breath. And as you breathe in, fill up with God. And as you exhale, let it all flow through you. Inhale the love of God. And exhale, let God's love flow through you. In the name of the one who gives us the very breath that we breathe, amen. So we're picking up today right where we left off last week. If you're just checking in for the first time for a month now, we've been in this 1 Corinthians 13 passage, also known as the love passage. Today, verse 7, love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. So I want you to go back in time with me. We're going to go to the year 1987. At this point, I'm, I'm seven years old, and I grew up on a, a small farm, nothing big. We had just a couple of acres, but we had some cows, we had some chickens, and we had, uh, had a couple of horses here and there. But like a lot of people that, that, that have cows, we spent a fair amount of our Saturdays out at the cattle auction there between Joshua and Cleburne. And if you've never been, it's just this amphitheater-type arena. All the ranchers are bidding on the cows. They send in one cow at a time. Ranchers bid on it while the auctioneer is doing his song and dance. Well, on one particular Saturday, I found myself behind the arena where all the cattle pens were and the cattle chutes were. And I didn't know this at the time, but I found myself in the one cattle chute that they were about to release a bunch of bulls 
to come down. So I want you to just imagine the scenario, this seven-year-old version of me, which, surprise, surprise, I was not a big kid. I know, I know that's a shock. I was not a big seven-year-old. I was a little guy. So a little seven-year-old. I look to my left, and I see these big, burly bulls headed my way. Now, I'd seen enough TV westerns to know what happens with stampeding cattle, so I don't want to stick around to see what happens. The fear wells up inside of me, and I turn out of fear, and I just want to take off running. But as soon as I do that, as soon as I turn, something catches my eye. And it changes that moment completely for me. And all of a sudden, my fear, it starts to slowly go away. And instead of running, I just very calmly back up, get to the edge of the fence, and I watch as the bulls run past me. What changed? What, what is it that I saw in that moment that took my fear and wiped it away? Hold on to that. We'll, we'll come back to that in, in just a moment. So this love passage, 1 Corinthians 13, what Paul is doing here with this love passage, he's, he's painting a picture for the church on who they are to become. In 1 John 4, we read that God is love. And so Paul is showing the church what God is like. Love is patient. Love is kind. God is patient. God is kind. And so we as the church, we are called to become patient and kind. God trusts. God hopes. So we are called to trust and to hope. And that's easy enough until a friend hurts us. And then we have trust issues. Or tragedy hits and hope is now on short supply. You see, if, if we didn't have to worry about anybody else in this world, if, if we could just isolate ourselves and be in our own protective little bubble and it's just me and God, that's it, just the two of us, if that's all I got to worry about, hey, man, this following Christ thing, man, it's pretty simple. It gets a lot more complicated in the real world. And so let's just, let's just stay in our own little lanes and not worry about anybody else. And then in the middle of that thought, Paul interrupts and Paul says, no. That's not what it means to be the church. In chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, you can, you can see kind of where Paul is with this church at this point. In chapter 3, he says, look, I, before I couldn't address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants, I gave you milk, not solid food, because you weren't ready for it. And here we are now, you still aren't ready for it. There's jealousy among you, quarreling among you. You don't stand out. Nothing about you says you follow Christ. When, when you walk the streets, nobody notices you. Nobody, you don't stand out. Nobody says, oh, hey, there goes a Christ follower. You, you blend it in so well to the world around you that you become just as broken. And what's worse is you've taken that brokenness and you brought it with you into the church. It's jealousy, quarreling. So still, I can't, I can't give you the meat and potatoes. You're not ready for that. Still, all I can give you is the milk. I hope you can, you can sense a little bit of Paul's frustration right there. And, and he should be. I mean, he, he, he established this church three years before writing this letter. And here we are three years removed, and it appears as though there's been no growth, nothing to show for it. Now, as it turns out, there's, there's a decent connection between the city of Corinth in this time period and our world. 
in Corinth at that time, everybody, everybody belonged to somebody else. Everybody had a master. Everybody owed a debt to somebody else. Somebody was holding a debt over everybody. And while that's going on, you've got everybody kind of jostling for a higher position on the social food chain. Everybody just trying to climb that social ladder. Does, it, does that sound at all familiar? And when Paul looked into the church, he saw that same dysfunction plaguing the church. People in the church using their status and lording it over other people in the church. And Paul says, no, this is not what it means to be the church. None of you is better than anybody else. We all need each other. In chapter 12, the chapter before we get to the love passage, he goes through this like 20-verse metaphor where he compares the body of Christ to the physical body. And he says, hey, this leg, no better than this leg. This arm, it's no better than this nose, this eye. It's no better than this ear. If the body is going to progress, if the body is going to grow, if it's going to prosper, it relies on all of it. They all need each other. No part is better than the other. When one part suffers, the whole body feels it. We all need each other. We all count on each other. We all rely on each other. And so Paul tells us love trusts, love hopes. Now, for some of you, when you hear that, the first thought that you have is, well, how do I trust those type of people that do that sort of thing or these type of people that do this sort of thing, the people that vote this way or think this way about this issue? How do I trust those people? And if those are your thoughts, what I want you to do, I want you to take all of those thoughts and I want you to shift them to the side for today. Because I think when Paul writes this love passage, I think he hoped that the church would read it and then ask, okay, so how do I love people better? How do I show love better? And if that's your starting point, the question is not how do I trust better? The question becomes how can I be trusted better? If you're in any position of leadership, this is a question that you need to be wrestling with often. Do my people trust me? Will they follow me? Do they know that I have their best intentions at heart? Do I? Do I have their best intentions at heart? If you're a boss and you have employees, if you're a parent and you have kids, that's a question you need to wrestle with. Do I really have their best intentions at heart? You see, anytime there's division. There's an issue of broken trust. And when we look into the, the Corinthian church, there was division. And it was because of broken trust. Very much like our current political climate during election year with the, with the two parties as, as divided as they are and, and both sides sort of digging their heels in on, on standing the ground, saying, looking across the aisle saying, hey, you've got to do the work. You've got to repair the broken trust. You've got to build the bridge to come to my side. I'm not doing a thing until you give me a reason to believe in you again. And until then, I'm going to stay put. You've got to go first. What I will tell you as a Christ follower, this is a luxury we don't have. We don't wait for others to go first. We begin with ourselves. We do the work of becoming more trustworthy. See, trust, it begins with being transparent open, not guarded with fear. It's based on a genuine desire to care for somebody else. 
It's not based on manipulation. It's not based on fear. It's not based on threats. A lot of uh, some of the social gatherings that we find ourselves in, this is, whether we admit it or not, at the core of it, it's really based on a, a common fear or a common threat. So in, in February of 1917, this is in the middle of World War I, the Russians and the Germans, they're, they're fighting each other. It's a pretty rough battle, as, as battles tend to be. But in the middle of the battle, they actually call for a ceasefire, and they temporarily join forces. Now, why would, they, why would they do this? Because they got a common enemy who shows up. You know what that enemy was? It was wolves. There were ravenous wolves looking for food. And the front lines of war provided these wolves with lots of free food. And the wolves, they didn't care if it was a Russian or a German. All they saw was free food. And so the Russians and the Germans, they realized, hey, we've got a bigger problem on our hands. And so they put aside the war, they join forces, and they go and take care of the wolves. You see, this is not a relationship based on trust. This is an alliance based on mutual gain. And what do you suppose happened the moment they took care of the wolves? The war picked right back up, and they went right back at each other. You see, a bond born out of a common enemy is only as strong as that enemy. The moment that enemy disappears, so too does that bond. Now, none of us will look at that situation and ever confuse that as being a relationship based on trust. Yet, a lot of our relationships are really nothing more than that. They're nothing more than an alliance for mutual gain. But you see in your notes, trust is built on giving, not on taking on a willingness to serve, not on a desire to gain. When you, when you read through the Gospels, you're going to come across two primary religious groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they're grouped together typically when Jesus shows up. You see, they don't, they don't really like Jesus. Partly because they know he's trustworthy and they know they aren't. But what's interesting about the Pharisees and the Sadducees is they are actually bitter rivals. They don't like each other at all. And they might as well be the Republicans and Democrats. But when Jesus shows up, they've got a common enemy. And an alliance forms. You see, their relationship with the people, it wasn't based on trust. It was based on manipulation on survival, on greed. And they knew Jesus was good. They knew that he loved the unlovable. They knew that he was trustworthy. And they knew it was going to screw everything up that they had going for him, and they hated him for it. And the alliance forms. And as it's forming, what does Jesus do? He, he sees what's going on. And he says, okay, all right, you guys, you, you have fun with this alliance you have. You have fun with, the, with this desire for personal gain. While you're doing that, those, those people that you want nothing to do with, the ones you've cast out, I'm going to go hang out with them. I'm going to go and serve them. You see, from the earliest moments of the church, it was built on a foundation of being trustworthy by serving, by giving, not by taking, not by asking, hey, what's in it for me? So the world has lost quite a bit of trust in the church over the years. And 
we have to admit it's well-deserved. Just the scandals within the church in the last 10 years alone is enough. We, we try to point people to Jesus, but our brokenness, it gets in the way. And, and Paul tells the church, Paul says, hey, if you're going to get people to put their trust in Jesus, they've got to be able to trust you first. But you're just as broken. Like you, you don't have to be perfect, but you, you got to be better than what you are. So if we're going to do the work, if we as the church are going to work to build the bridge to those outside, and if you're watching today and you're not a part of the church, I'm willing to bet you've got a good reason why. Somebody within the church has burned you. Somebody within the church has stood for something less than becoming than what, what Jesus stands for. And so those of us in the faith, we have to do the work. If we're going to do the work to rebuild that trust, here's how we do it. One of the, one of the best ways to build trust, people trust someone who makes others better. This is another leadership nugget for you. A good leader is not the one who always wins. A good leader is the one who helps others win. As a Christ follower, this is who we are to become, to be rooting for others, investing in their success, seeing people through the lens of their potential, not through the lens of their mistakes. See, people crave this sort of person. You know what I'm talking about. The person that can look in you and see what God sees. The person that can look in you and see the thing that nobody else can see and calls that out of you, speaks it into existence. I've, I've talked a little bit about my college years, what, I, what I, I refer to as my wilderness wanderings, the time in my life when I, I went to church maybe twice, maybe in a five-year period. And as you would expect, I had more than a few moral failures. Yet in spite of all of that, God still provides for me. And one of the ways that God provides for me was through one of my best friends, in college, and she happened to be a youth minister at the time. And she saw me not for who I was, not for the mistakes that I was making. She saw me through the lens of who God was calling me to be, and she never let me forget it. And whenever I messed up, you know what she didn't say? She didn't say, wow, Chris, you screwed up again. Chris, why do you... Why do you do this, Chris? Why do you always screw up? This is something you always do. Why do you always do this? When are you going to get your act together, Chris? Or that's just Chris. That's just what he does. That's his MO. She doesn't say that. This is what she says. She says, hey, Chris, this, this is not who you are. You are better than this. She was seeing me through the lens of who God was calling me to be, and she continued to speak to that person. If you are a parent, those are some phrases you need to permanently remove from your vocabulary. When your kids mess up, don't go down on them and say, hey, why do you always do this? Why do you always screw up? When are you going to get it together? Why do you always do this? Stop saying that. Because when you say that over and over again, why do you always do this? Guess what? They hear it, and they learn it. And then they become it, and then we're surprised that they turn out to be the very thing that we told them they were. Why don't we use that to our advantage and say, hey, that's not who you are. You were better than that. You were fearfully and wonderfully made. 
God's calling you into a better world. Let's work together, figure out who that person is, and I'm going to help you become that person. Jesus was a pretty cool guy. He did a lot of cool things, but one of my favorite things about Jesus was his ability to see the best in people and call it out of them. The disciples, they, these were the unusual suspects. The people that nobody else wanted anything to do with, Jesus calls them. And even when they mess up, he stays with them. Mark chapter 5, one of my favorite stories. Demon-possessed man. And that's all he'd ever be. The crazy guy. Everybody in the town knew he was the crazy guy. Don't mind him. That's just who he is. Leave him be. Don't waste your time. The problem is somebody forgot to tell Jesus that's all he was ever going to be. Jesus comes into town and he sees the man. But he doesn't see him as the demon-possessed man. He doesn't see him as the crazy person. He sees him as the man that God's calling him to be. And that's the person that Jesus talks to. Jesus calls that man, speaks him into existence, and the man is healed. He's clothed and in his right mind, and the whole town is shocked. And we look at that, and we say, wow, what a miracle. But guess what? It's a miracle that God calls us to work every day to see the best in people and call it out of them. John chapter 7, woman caught in adultery. And that's all she'd ever be, the adulterer. Everybody knew it. Everybody in the town knew it. Wearing the scarlet letter on her chest. That's, that's, that's who she was. Once again, somebody forgets to fill Jesus in on who she was. And Jesus sees her. Not the sin, not the mistake. He sees the heart that beats inside of her. He sees the woman that God created. And that's the person that he speaks to. There she is lying on the ground ready to receive her punishment in Jesus. He calls out to her and he says, will the real woman, not the sin, not the mistake, will the real woman please stand up? He sees the best in her and he calls that woman out, speaks her into existence, and he says, now go and sin no more. Jesus believes in people. Jesus has faith in people. Love believes Love has faith. You see, trust is not cynical. Trust is hopeful. So I have a favor to ask. If you're somebody who is pretty active in social media, and I suspect this is, this is the season when a lot of the online arguments are going to kick it into high gears, we get closer to November, First thing is, if, if you have no real desire, no need to be on social media, maybe you sit the next couple of months out. I've, I, I've been out for a couple of months. I've been off for a couple of months off of Facebook, and I'm not jumping back on until I find a good enough reason that I need to, and so far I haven't found one. Um, but if you are, if you're on, online, and you're getting ready to engage into an online argument with the person that you've never met, and in that moment... You feel like you know all that you need to know about that person based on the two or three sentences that they've typed. I want you to pause, and I want you to take a moment. And I want you to imagine that maybe, just maybe, you don't know all that you need to know about that person. And I would invite you 
to come up with a story for that person. Make it up. It doesn't matter. But just, just ask yourself some questions about that person. Hey, what time did that person wake up today? What did they have for breakfast? Who do they live with? What conversations did they have today? What are their stresses? What are they worried about today? Do they, do they have a family member who's in the hospital and is not doing well and they can't see them? Is there uncertainty with their job? Is there a strained relationship in their home? Whatever it is, come up with a story for that person and just entertain the possibility that maybe you don't know all that you need to know about that two-dimensional character looking at you on the screen. And when you do this, don't assume the worst about that person. You see, trustworthy people, they have a courage to assume the best in people. Jesus calls us to be the salt and light of the earth. You know what salt does? When used properly, salt brings out the best flavor in whatever you put it on. That's why you, you see salt in almost any type of recipe, because it brings out the best of what it goes on to. That's what Jesus is calling us to do, to assume the best in people. What do you have to lose? Will people disappoint you? Yeah, probably so. That's okay. Raise your hand if you've never disappointed anybody. Raise your hand. We've all done it. And there have been people who haven't given up on us. Believing in people, having faith in people is the strength to absorb the disappointment and continue to speak the best into people and to not give up on them. It doesn't keep score. What did we learn last week? Love keeps no record of wrongs. Because this is how we tend to, to operate. We have a, a, a social or a moral balance sheet that we keep, and we keep it pretty close. And it works like this. I'm going to do for you or I'm going to have faith in you, or I'm going to believe in you, I'm going to love you, I'm going to offer the help to you to the degree that you have done those things for me. If you help me, then I will help you. If you burn me, then I will burn you. That's how we tend to handle our relationships. But what if we made one shift in that balance sheet? What if we looked at it just a little differently. And instead of saying, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have hope in you. I'm going to believe in you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to do the things for you based on what you've done for me. Instead of saying it that way, we say, hey, I'm going to love you the way God has loved me. I want to have faith in you the way God has faith in me. I'm not going to give up on you the way that God has not given up on me. How might that one shift change our relationships Love always trusts, always hopes. Love is not cynical. It builds others up. Love goes first. I want you to flip over to 1 John chapter 4. Now, if you're somebody, you're early on in your journey, or maybe you haven't even started your journey, you're just curious about this, this uh, faith thing that we're doing here. And you're not sure where to start, I'll tell you, go to 1 John. That's a great place to start your Bible journey because it's going to show you a lot about the God that we serve, the God that loves us. And it's going to show you a lot of very important parts of our faith. I want to pick up there at verse 7. It says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. 
Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. You see, it begins with God. God loves us first. God trusts us first. And as we receive what God has given us, in the very next moment as an act of gratitude, we give it to somebody else. This is why we don't say, I will do for you what you've done for me. This is why instead we say, I will do for you what God has done for me. This passage is one of my favorites in the Bible. It's a go-to for me because it talks about going first, willing to risk it all for somebody else. It's why Kristen and I, we used this passage in our wedding because it reminds us of a very important part about trust. Trust requires vulnerability. Now, that could be one of the scariest parts about trust. But if we want to develop genuine trust with someone, we have to open ourselves up and be who we are and take all that goes with that. Now, I will tell you, nobody, nobody knows me quite like my wife knows me. And we've been together for almost 10 years now. We've been married for almost 10 years. And, and she's, man, she, she celebrated me at my best, but she stuck with me through my worst. Now, I wanted, to, I wanted to bring her up here and interview her in front of all of you to, so we could reflect, just kind of have a conversation about our, our marriage these past 10 years. However, I want to stay married. So I was like, no, don't worry about it. You, you stay home. Well, so what I did instead was she and I, we sat down in our backyard, and we just had a conversation. And we reflected on 10 years of marriage and what that's been like for us, the highs and the lows. And I, just, I set up a couple of cameras in my backyard just to capture it so that I could bring that conversation here. It's nothing overly produced, just a very simple conversation between my wife and I about love, trust, and marriage, what that's been like. So I want to invite you all into my backyard and into that conversation. So we've been, we've been together for 12 years. We've been married for, for 10 years. Almost 10 years. Almost 10 years. Sorry. When we first, when we first got together, first started dating, you had an idea about trust. What, what, did, what did love as trust, what did that mean to you? We started dating, and I was a single mom. So, you know, that was um, always the first thing on my mind, uh, taking care of him and making sure that he is well taken care of, and he was my number one priority. When you and Aiden first met, um, it, was, it was almost an instant connection with you guys. And you felt that, you know that. Um, and that was, that hit me, and that was really important for me. So by you, by him trusting you, and him loving you, and with you loving and trusting him, it gave me that peace and that, and, and you know, helped me trust you. And you were consistent with Aiden, and I think trust has a lot to do with consistency. consistency. At the beginning, it was me trusting you. 
that I wasn't going to get hurt. And that was a big thing for me because I, I fell in love with Aiden right away. And so I knew this is going to be a different situation for me because I've, I've, I've dealt with breakups before. Mm-hmm. But to have to deal with a breakup and have to kind of say bye to Aiden, that really raised the stakes for me. And so, yeah, I, I trusted in the beginning, but there was a little bit of fear of like, what if this doesn't work out? Can I handle that sort of heartbreak? Mm-hmm. And as I, as I leaned into it, it wasn't so much, can I trust at the beginning? It was, I'm not sure. I hope, I hope. And that's one of the things that Paul says, love always hopes. I, I hope. And you and Aiden were both worth it. Okay, so love, trust, intimacy. Working on these, really trying to think about these three things, how they go together. They, they don't always mean an absence of conflict. And, and actually, I, I would argue quite the opposite, that, that sometimes intimacy can be strengthened because of the conflict. So the question, my question is, can you, can you think of a time when we're, we're in the middle of an argument at the same time that you're feeling frustration with me, that while you're feeling that at the same time, you still feel close with me, you still feel connected to me? For me, I know no matter what kind of conflict we're in or what we're arguing about, we're arguing and I know from the get-go of that argument that uh, we're, we're gonna get to the end of it we're gonna get through it uh, we're not going anywhere you know there's been a couple of times where you know we're just like well what do we do you know and feel like giving up but we know we both know that we made a choice that we were going to do it so for me at the time of conflict, I do not feel close to you. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I, I see the end. I know we're going to get through it because that's where the trust comes in. So I do not feel close to you at the moment, but I do at the end. What's one season that, that's been, that you felt was the most challenging in our, our time together? How, what, how long would we have been married then? Five years. We were selling a house, uh-huh. and we were buying a house. Uh-huh. So, and we were also going on vacation. Yes. <laughs> Wonderful plan. Well, how could that ever go wrong? <laughs> yes. So, you add all three of those, and it makes not so great vacations. We're total opposite in the way we think. Yeah. You get set on something and, until it's completed, and finished, you won't, you don't let it go. Yeah. I can shut that off and switch it and pretend like it's never happened and have a good time. Yeah. That put a lot of strain, I think. Yeah. We got through it, of course. We did? We did. We got through it. <laughs> Five years later, we're still here. I remember Five that, years. and I remember being frustrated too. I think you were frustrated with the fact that I couldn't let it go. And I was frustrated that you wouldn't grab onto it. Like, why aren't you stressed like me? And I think that was a, a, a really good example of why we, we work really well together because 
I'm going to be the person that's going to be disciplined to make sure, okay, we got to get this done. I want to keep us driving forward, which we need. But at the same time, you're going to be that person that reminds me, hey, stop, slow down. Like our, our kids are growing up. And if you, if you don't stop, if you're constantly project minded, you're going to look back on our kids' lives and really see it as a series of you completing tasks and really missing out on just relaxing and having fun. And so, Work in progress, people. What, what are some of the challenges about being married to me? What are they? Well, there's so many. <laughs> you can't think of just one. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> but seriously. But seriously. Both of our thinking processes. We think totally different. Yeah. You're more analytical. I'm not. We make it work. That's why it takes us so long to get through conflict. <laughs> so I'll go ahead and state the obvious. My wife is a lot prettier than I am. But I will also tell you, if you think she's a beautiful woman, you don't know the half of it. Because you don't know the woman that I know. And the woman that I know is a woman that doesn't give up on me, even though she has a right to. The woman that I know stays with me at my worst and continues to see the best of me. The woman that I know loves me unconditionally. And I, I never forget that. If you are married, I invite you every morning when you wake up, you renew the promise that you made to love your spouse. And you put your hand on your spouse and you just say a quick prayer. You just say thank you. That's it. Just say thank you. As an act of gratitude recognizing that your spouse is a gift from God but also as a reminder of the vows that you made and the choice that you're making that day to be married. So I want to go back to my story at the beginning. You remember the seven-year-old version of me? I'm in the cattle pens. I'm in the chute. Cow's coming at me, and I'm freaking out. I'm about to run away, and then I see something, and, and it changes. What did I see? What did I see in that moment that took my fear and made it start to go away? It's really simple, actually. I saw my dad. That was it. I saw my dad. But I didn't just see my dad in that moment. What I saw was the man who had protected me. I saw the man who had fed me, who had clothed me. I saw the man who provided for me, a man that hugged me, that told me that he loved me, that told me he was proud of me. I saw the man that I knew loved me, and because I knew he loved me, I trusted him. You see, I didn't have to trust the bulls that were coming at me. That's not what God's saying to us at all. He's not saying when life is crazy and you got bulls coming at you, you don't have to trust the bulls in that situation. Don't worry about them. God says, hey, trust me. Know that I love you. Trust me in that moment. And as we, as we lean into the love of God and learn to trust God, we don't react out of fear. We respond out of love. The best picture of love is trust is when Jesus hung on the cross. The picture of, of radical vulnerability putting his trust in God and showing patience and kindness to the people that put him on there and showing love to everybody regardless 
not acting out of fear. It says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Did Jesus trust everybody in that moment, in that situation? No, he didn't, but he didn't have to. He trusted his Father in heaven. And so many years later, we still think that the way to prosper, the way to progress, the way to grow, the way to win is by overpowering, outwitting, outlasting the enemy. And Jesus says, no, that ain't it. That ain't it. You don't need to outlast the enemy. You gotta, all you got to do is outlove them. That's it. The words that Moses tells Joshua, he says, be strong and courageous. Wherever you go, the Lord has gone before you, and the Lord is with you, and he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And Jesus says, lean into that. Trust in that. Don't trust in the bulls. Don't trust in the cows. Trust in that. And in that moment, when the bulls come, you react and you respond with love. And the more we do this, moment by moment, relationship by relationship, the more we lean into the love that God has for us, the more we trust in God, the more we love the unlovable the more the fear of our world is disarmed. Because we all know, we all have the confidence, ultimately, no matter what, guess what? God wins. No matter what. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Jesus says, put your trust in that. I want us to finish the same way that we started, with this silent prayer, and I invite you just to be still again. Be comfortable, close your eyes, and again, just become aware of your breath. Take in the love of God. And then breathe out that same love out into the world. Take in the knowledge that your Father in heaven loves you, that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. That God will never leave you, never forsake you. That in all circumstances of life, God is with you. That God has a plan for you, plans for you to prosper, not to harm you, but to give you hope and a future. Take all of that in as much as you can. And as you take it in, breathe out into the world that same hope, that same trust, that same faith. Take in the love of God. And breathe out that same love. Father, for the breath that we get to breathe, for every beat of our hearts, we say thank you. Because we know that this thing called life is a gift. A gift that you have given us, a gift that you give to us every day, that you sustain us because it's worth it. And as we say thank you, Father, we pray that you give us the courage to be the type of person that loves the world the way that you do. That doesn't just love those that loved him, that love the ones that love everybody. Help us to be the ones that can be a part of your transforming love in the world that, that changes fear into faith. 
It changes fear into hope, into trust, into belief, into love. Father, allow us to be a part of your transforming love in the world today, tomorrow, and the next day, and the next week, and the next year, and on. In your son's name we pray. Amen. You guys have a great Sunday. If I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you after the service. Check you out later.